Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Why do we have insights when our mind is quiet? How do insights play a role in our ability to learn and when do they impact the trajectory of our lives? Welcome to Insight Out, where we explore these questions and dissect how insights influence who we are and ultimately who we become. I interview New York Times bestselling authors and some of the most influential minds of our time to find out what insights have helped to make them who they are. When I realized that the world worked in many different ways, I'm going to choose to create a life that is specifically designed for me. I see infinite capacity to think and create. That's the magic that we all have. You can tap into that any point in your life. You just have to decide to do it. And as a leader, you have to be a transition figure. As Dr. Covey said, be a light, not a judge. Be a model, not a critic. If you're like me, constantly working to design a life that will allow you to reach your fullest potential so that you can leave your mark on this planet, then you're in the right place. I'm glad to have you on this journey and hope you enjoy this episode of Inside Out. Hello, and right now we're going to bring on Steve Hoffman. He's also known as Captain Hoff. If you're unfamiliar, he is an absolute legend in Silicon Valley, the chairman and CEO of Founders Space, which is one of the world's leading incubators and accelerators. He's an angel investor, a serial entrepreneur, and the author of the incredible award-winning book, Make Elephants Fly. Read that book. Seriously, go read that book. It's incredible. He also just released a new book called The Five Forces That Change Everything. And he's also the author of the book we're going to be discussing today, which is called Surviving a Startup. He got his start in Hollywood. He's produced hundreds of TV shows. He went on to pioneer an interactive TV venture-funded startup called Spider Dance. And he followed that up with two other startups in the gaming space. And today, Captain Hoff is on a mission to help educate and accelerate entrepreneurs on their journey. And that's why we're going to demystify and decode what it takes to survive a startup. So with that, I'm so excited and it gives me great pleasure to say welcome to Captain Hoff. Thank you, Billy. It's wonderful to be here. That was a really nice introduction. I have to correct one thing, though. I did not produce hundreds of TV shows and movies. I actually worked as a development executive in one of the top companies in Hollywood that did that. So that's a correction. It's wonderful to be here and talk to everybody. I look forward to hearing your questions. I am the chairman and CEO of Founderspace, a global startup incubator. So I work with entrepreneurs all over the world. I have also run three venture-funded startups in Silicon Valley and two bootstrapped ones. So I know a bit about what it takes and what you have to go through to be a successful entrepreneur. And I am very excited to talk to you today. HarperCollins recently published my book, Surviving a Startup, where I go really deep into what you need to know when you're doing a startup. So if you have questions 
about fundraising, about what it takes to do a startup, about the business models, about the technologies of the future. I am open to all those questions. Just fire them at me. Well, we're going to get into a Q&A. And before we do, I want to set up to make sure that everybody has a good foundation to start from. And in your book, the first thing that you do is you, in no uncertain terms, help people understand why they may not be the right fit to start a startup. In fact, you list about 10 reasons why somebody should consider perhaps not starting a startup. So can you share a bit of the flavor of why you start your book in that way? So I start my book in that way because a lot of people approach it backwards. A lot of entrepreneurs think that they need to have an epiphany, a brilliant idea before they can even think about starting a startup. But I will actually tell you, whatever brilliant idea you come up with, you actually idea if it's brilliant until you go out into the real world with the idea. And most people do not realize uh, that their idea actually doesn't work for quite some time. And it's that process of discovering what works and what doesn't is what really determines whether your startup will be successful. So when you start a startup, if you are going into it to really figure something out, like you have, I tell entrepreneurs, don't think of a specific idea. If you want to be successful, actually think of a bunch of ideas in an area that you are fascinated by, in an area that you really want to make a difference in and make change in. It can be clean energy, it can be the environment, it could be any business segment that you're really passionate about, but go deep in that area. And first, the first thing you need to do as an entrepreneur is spend 80% of your time not working on the idea not developing a product, not trying to raise money, that's for sure, but really finding the other people that you can collaborate with because those people are going to make or break. You know, really incredible CEOs, the thing that they do best is they surround themselves with amazing talent, really the best of the breed. Because I can tell you, even if you stumble on that incredible idea, that is going to change the world. If you don't have a great team to back you up and execute on it, you're going to fumble the ball. You're going to drop it at some point and somebody with a better team is going to pick it up because all these ideas are out there and run with it. And they're going to be the one that succeeds. It's not always the first company. You know, Google was the 19th search engine out there and they were the one who figured it out, figured out how to do search right with their algorithm before anybody else. But they weren't the first search company. There are a lot of people ahead of them. They just didn't have it together. So, and this is true across the board. I see it. I invest in companies and I see it. And there's a lot of people out there who want to join a startup because they don't like working for a boss. Well, that's not a good enough reason. Like if you don't like working for your current boss, wait until you're your own boss. I will tell you, you are probably the worst boss you will ever have in a startup because you can never escape yourself. You know, you're trapped in your own head and you will always be thinking you should work harder. So if you think your boss is a slave driver, don't do a startup. You actually have it easy. So there are a lot of reasons you shouldn't do it. You shouldn't do it just to get rich quick. We read about all the people who get rich quick, but actually it's a very uh, small number of people who actually make it. Most startups fail. 
And today I want to share with you what start what I see, because I work with hundreds of entrepreneurs every year around the world, what I see that they don't do right, the mistakes they make, the pitfalls, where they trip up, and the things that they do right. And hopefully I can guide you along that path. Right. And I think one of the things that you highlight is the number one reason most startups fail is their inability to find the right product market fit. And the other thing that you highlight just so beautifully is this idea that starting a company, it's not going to provide all of the amazing things one might think, including it might not be the purpose-filled, mission-driven thing that you think it could be. Not every startup has that as part of its DNA. But what does happen with every startup that's successful is they're able to do what you've just highlighted so beautifully, which is building a team. So I really want to cover three big buckets today. One is team. One is the ability to pivot. And then the third is this idea of understanding how to get the market fit, which is getting close to your customers, getting feedback, and everything that goes into understanding how you can deliver something that people truly and absolutely need. So let's start with team, okay? So team's so important, but how do we build a team effectively? And one of the things you highlight that really stood out to me is finding those unique players that will round out maybe some areas that you're not as well qualified in, they will deliver in those areas. And one thing that comes to mind specifically is design how important it is to find somebody who is absolutely extraordinary at design. So can you talk a little bit about the team building component? Because you've just highlighted how important it is. So really, when you think about building your team, you have to know your own skill sets. What are you excellent at? You can do that. And usually, if you're the CEO, you better be excellent at one thing, and that is leadership, getting people together. Because honestly, that's how you build a big company. If you want to remain a solo business, a solopreneur, you can do that. And a lot of people do, and they have great lifestyles, and that's fine. But if you want to build a company that's more than yourself, you really need to work on your leadership skills. And as an investor, and all the investors I work with, when we go and look at startups, we aren't just looking at the, the capabilities of the CEO because we know, well, that CEO can, as one person can only do so much. You know, they could be the best coder in the world, the best designer, anything. But what they need are a lot of other people around them to really carry out that vision. So our test is who have you surrounded yourself by? Who have you been able to get on your team? And when I work with entrepreneurs, this is actually their biggest challenge when they have no money. Like they're like, how am I going to get a great engineer? How am I going to get a great user experience designer, a top marketing person? These people, they could be paid a small fortune from Google or Facebook or Microsoft or any of these other startups out there that are well-funded. Why would they work for me for no money? Well, first of all, you have to realize that this is your test. This is the first test you need to pass is getting these people to commit to you. And how do you do it? I will tell you, you do it by making them a real part of what you're trying to build. Not somebody who's working for you, not an employee, because they can go out and get a great job with a great salary. You need to make them a part of the creative force behind the company. And you do that, honestly, by opening up the whole process of discovering, going into the market, creating and generating the ideas that will become this company with them. So 
how you get an excellent person to quit a secure job where they have incredible benefits and stock options in, in the future is because they actually feel like they are creating this company with you. You have to go to them. And this is why I say it's actually better not to have an idea. If you have your own idea, then you're trying to sell them on your idea, get them to buy into your idea. But if you go to them and say, look, you want to do work in this area. Let's say it's the fishing industry. Let's say you want to make the fishing industry more sustainable. You go out and find the best people in the world who are passionate about this. Like they also really believe that there's a lot of bycatch, a lot of waste in the fishing industry. You know, we're destroying the fish stocks and they want to help solve this problem. And they may have different skills than you. Some of them may be engineers. Other of them may be marketing people or designers. You go to them and you say, look, let's solve this problem together. I don't have the solution, but we're going to figure it out together. By doing that, first of all, you increase your chance of success because you're going into the marketplace, not alone, but with other incredibly smart people who have different backgrounds. And then together, you are searching for solutions, usually in most cases, using new technology because technology opens doors for people to do things differently than they've done them before or much, much better with AI, blockchain, you know, new hardware, IoT. You can go into that industry and actually come up with solutions that never existed before. And the other key thing is that when you aren't locked on an idea, you are much more receptive to what people are telling you. If you are going in with an idea that you already have committed to, then you're trying to sell them on your vision. Instead of when you engage with customers, actually figuring out what works for them. Because you may have the perfect solution for making the fishing industry more sustainable. But if your customers don't see a benefit in that, if the fishing industry itself says, we don't want to spend the money for that, it doesn't affect our bottom line, they're not going to adopt it. You need to have something that achieves that vision of making it more sustainable, but also hits the points, the pain points that they are suffering from, that they think they need so that they will actually adopt it. That is the challenge in this world. And by going in with a team that is highly motivated for this, you can start running experiments, trying all sorts of different things and seeing which ones actually hit those fundamental needs, your ultimate customers, you are trying to get to adopt your product. One of the things you say is have a specific problem you want to solve. But what I'm hearing you say is the solution can be solved creatively with a team. You need to identify the problem, but the solution is a product of what you and your team co-create. And I think that's a really important note. So again, have a specific problem you want to solve. Even more important, it's not just you and your team. It's you, your team, and your customer. It's all three. So you don't come up with that on your own, right? You come up with that in collaboration with other really smart people with different access to new ideas and technologies that you may not know about and your customer who has specific needs that you probably don't completely understand coming in from the outside. And you need to make find that intersection between all of you. And that's where the gold is. And I want to say that great entrepreneurs really are not people who envision a, a great idea out of the blue. They are people who go into the world 
with a really open mind. That's why they're usually from outside the industry. Usually these great innovations like don't come from within the industry itself. Like the fishing industry, they keep doing things the way they've always done it. Whether it's destroying our you know, fish populations or not, they're going to keep doing what they do. So it usually takes people from the outside. But you also need to understand in that industry, what moves them, what gets them to adopt a new product, to make a decision. And that's why you need them as your partner. So you need to match their needs with new technologies and new ways of doing things that create a benefit for everybody in that ecosystem. What a great point. Yeah. It's not just you. It's not just your team. It's you, your team, and your customer. And speaking of team, one of the things that you say is build a team of people who are obsessed with the success of your company. And that's why you need to find not just employees, not just people that want a paycheck, but people who believe there should be a solution to this problem. So before we move into pivot, which is part two, I want to talk a little bit about design specifically. You suggest that if you're going to go study something in school, design is not a bad idea. Why is design so fundamentally important as you think about not only players within a company, but just generally as well? What we're seeing today is there are a lot of technologies out there. There's always new technologies coming. Technologies on their own do nothing. Like you can have the best technology in the world and go to somebody to try to sell it. And they're like, what does it do for me? Like, how does it work? How do I use it? That's where design comes in. Now, design thinking, if you haven't studied it, really important to understand. Because what design is today is it's creating a user experience. And many of the best products out there are simply design innovation. They aren't technical innovation at all. Take, for example, Dropbox. Dropbox, there were other file sharing companies out there before Dropbox. There was X-Files, X-Drive, all these different companies. They all disappeared because they were too hard to use. What Dropbox did, their huge innovation wasn't technical. It was actually at the right time coming up with the right design where people just got it. And if you look at almost every product, doesn't matter if it's an enterprise product or a consumer product, whatever it is, these products are competing today in large part on their design. Because when we go in to use them, we know that pretty much all these companies out there have similar technologies. It's what we can actually relate to, what's simple enough, what we can understand, and we can actually put to work within our workflows. So if you don't have a great user experience designer on your team, you are missing out on one of the key places that could differentiate your product from every other one in the marketplace. And I will tell you, even if you go back to Apple, like Apple wasn't the first when they made the iPod, they weren't the first MP3 player. Steve Jobs knew there are a lot of MP3 players out there, but what he innovated on was not technology. iPod was not technically that much more sophisticated. It was design. He made it so easy to use. He made that whole ecosystem with iTunes. And then he went on and replicated that same philosophy with the iPhone. Again, it was designed. You, you look at the iPhone, even the latest one, the 13, the hardware is like everybody else. You know, they try to make you think through great marketing that they have some special hardware, but really, honestly, it's equivalent to everybody else. It's all Apple's success from day one was all around design. So when you're entering the marketplace, it's not just enough to have a great engineer, great idea, a great salesperson. You also need to think design. Perfect. Okay. So we've talked a lot about team. Now we're going to move to pivot, which is so important because initial ideas change. 
And the problem, you've already highlighted this, people fall in love with their own ideas, with their own solutions. Yet you don't need to look too far to see the startup landscape is littered with companies who started as one thing and then morphed into something else. LinkedIn was social net, right? I mean, like LinkedIn was called social net and it was not at all what it is today. And that's just one example. You highlight numerous examples. So why is it so important that we are able to pivot as we think of our initial idea and give ourselves the freedom to change to what it needs to be to best serve the customers that we're hoping to serve? Okay, I will tell you. And I'll give you a few more examples. Most people don't know this, but YouTube was a video dating site, a failed video dating site. That's what YouTube was. You know, I know the founders, I know how they started, but they figured out that that nobody really wanted to video date, especially when they were doing it. However, people did want to share files and they wanted to share video files. And that link sharing is what made YouTube take off. Google, when Larry Page and Sergey Brin started it, they thought it was a nonprofit and they were pretty much right because when they started, they were helping academics find research papers online. That was their original algorithm. That's what it was intended to do. It was only later that they figured out, wow, we built a superior algorithm for finding anything online. And that's when they moved into generalized search and took over. You look at Slack. Slack out there was a game. They were making a game and nobody was playing their game. Their game was a failure. But internally, inside the company, they had actually built a system for messaging one another. Their engineers had built this, making it really efficient to collaborate. And that's what became Slack. So on and on and on, these companies that were literally focused on one thing ended up finding their success somewhere else. And this goes to the point of pivoting. You have to be really, I work with so many entrepreneurs. People, there's this myth out there that people think if you stick with one idea, work incredibly hard, do not deviate from your vision, you will be successful. That couldn't be further from the truth. The actual truth is I've seen more startups fail because they stick with the same idea than those startups that that keep changing. They try one thing, doesn't work. Really great entrepreneurs go into the world. They're like looking what they are. They don't fall in love with their idea. What they're doing is they are hunting for demand. They are demand hunters. Great entrepreneurs go into the world. They'll try something. Do I get traction? Are people responding to this? No. Okay. Try something else. Are they responding to this? No. Okay. Try something else. They keep trying stuff, quitting, trying something else each time they're running an experiment. And they are analogous to an oil wildcatter. You know, when you go out and you stick that pipe into the ground and hope to hit the gusher, only this time, what they're hoping to hit is a gusher of demand, like something that just wells up. Demand is always shifting. There are always new pockets of demand in the world that are untapped, that are just waiting for an entrepreneur to come by and say, wow, I can help you with this. I can solve this problem for you. And the great entrepreneurs are sinking as many wells as fast as they can until they hit that gusher. And then they go really deep on building the product right there. It's so true too, because if you just do what you've just done and and really take the time to think through what success looks like historically, almost every company has changed from what they originally were. And if you don't have the ability to pivot, you're dead in the water. And you and I both come from a film and entertainment background. When I was in film school, they said, 
my screenwriting teacher said, you got to kill your babies. And it's a very graphic way to describe removing scenes that you need to not have in your final script because they don't serve the story. They don't help the narrative. They're unnecessary. You have to be willing, even if you spent a month working on a scene, you have to be willing to kill your baby, to get rid of the thing that you feel this connection to, but it doesn't actually help you. And so now let's talk a little bit about understanding and knowing your customer. And I think that begins with knowing your competition. You suggest something, and I love this. You say, become a power user of your competitors. So it's actually not stupid or foolish to study your competition. It's mandatory in your eyes. You got to study your competition and you go as far as to say, copying is your best business model. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. When you start in any area, I see far too few entrepreneurs that spend a huge amount of time on their competitors' products. I mean, really, really using their competitors' products every day, monitoring anything that their competitors are doing that could be, you know, breakthrough, that's actually gaining traction, and really analyzing what are their competitors doing right, and everything they're doing right, you should adopt automatically. And then even more importantly, what are they missing? What aren't they giving customers, this set of customers that this that the customers really need? So if you're smart and you're entering an industry, you spend an enormous amount of time up front and you should make, not just you, your, I mean, your entire team should be on your competitors' products and using them. And then they, your team should be doing one more thing. They should be engaging with the customers of your competitors finding out, are there things that they're just not getting from these products? Are there headaches that they're having that these products aren't solving? And how important are those headaches? Because I will tell you, when you engage with your customer, if what you're proposing to them isn't on their top five priority list, you know, one of the top five things that they absolutely need done, they will never use your product. If you are not solving one of their top five products problems, they will nod their head. They'll say, oh, that's great. Come back when it's ready. We'll try it out. But honestly, they will never buy it and they will never use it. In fact, if you are really smart, you will figure out something on their top three list. Like what are the top three things that they absolutely care about? And if you aren't spiking on that, and I say there are really only two ways to break through with a new startup, break through in a big way. Number one, you can't offer them something that is incrementally better than what they're already using. If your product is incrementally better than all the competitors out there, you've already failed. You're a new company. There's no reason they're going to switch. Think about you right now. Let's say you're a Gmail user and you're happy with Gmail and another email provider comes out. Uh, They have a few features that make their email application actually better than Gmail. Would you switch? I'm not going to switch. I tell you, uh, you know, I'm embedded in Gmail. I'm not going to learn a new system just for a few extra features. What you need to offer them is something exponentially better. That is so much better than what they're currently using. Like so much better than Gmail that you're like, oh my God, I can't stick with Gmail. I, I have to use this new product. And if it's not exponentially better, if you can't do that, if you can't deliver that value to your customer, There's only one other way to break through. And that second way is that you offer these customers something that's different, that offers a core value that is fundamentally different 
than they are getting. So if it's you're using Gmail happily to do email, but somebody else comes out with a communications tool that really solves problems in your life in a way that is just radically different from Gmail. Wow. Then you might use that in addition to Gmail. And that's where companies break through. So if you can't do one of those two things, if you don't have that, you don't have a business yet. You don't have a startup that's fundable. You don't have a startup that can scale. You need to figure that out right up front. And honestly, if you don't know your competitor's products, you will not get there. And if you're not engaged with those customers that use those products and are really probing deeply with them to figure out where their pain spots are, where the things that they need for whatever they're doing to make their life so much better, you're not going to get there. I love it. Become a power user of your competitors. Don't squander an opportunity. So Steve, my final thought and question here, it involves this idea of where we spend our time in the beginning. Because a lot of people are spending time on the product, spending time on raising money. They're spending time on this, on that. Your suggestion is spend time in the trenches with your customer. So talk a little bit about why that is so important because we already know that the biggest reason that companies fail is they lack that product market fit. They're not finding a fit within the marketplace. So why do you suggest over-indexing or indexing as high as possible in the trenches with your customers? It's really important for you to see the world through their eyes. This is ultimately what gives you that edge. Now, a lot of the best entrepreneurs I know, they are the customer. Like they built a product because they were suffering. They couldn't do something. Like the YouTube founders, they didn't get their idea out of thin air. Like for file sharing, they actually wanted to send out a video to all their friends and they couldn't think of a way to do it. And they're like, wait a second, we have this dating platform. We can actually just upload it to the dating platform, which makes a flash video out of it and share and send the link. That's where their idea came from. A problem they had that there was no solution out there. Good for them. A lot of other people had the same problem. Slack, like I mentioned earlier, Slack engineers wanted a better way to communicate within their team. And then they started adopting other instant messengers that were on the market and using those. And they were like, well, these don't quite do what we need to do as a team. They're like consumer-based instant messengers. We could build an enterprise-based one that makes us much more efficient. So they started to modify those. And that's they were solving their own problem. So they were the customer. Now, if you're entering an industry where you literally aren't the customer, you will not have those insights. And I always tell people, let's say you want to transform the restaurant business, like, and you want to bring new technologies, AI, IoT, all these blockchain into the restaurant industry. You could think of whatever you want, but you're going to be far better off if you embed yourself in a restaurant and actually are working side by side with the chefs, with the restaurant owners, with the waiters, figuring out where are their headaches? What is driving them absolutely nuts? Like out of all the things in the world, if they could change one thing, what would it be? And then you start, because you're a team and you're not alone, you have a technologist, you have a user interface designer, your team is embedded with them. You start to see the possibilities. Wow, there's these new technologies. If we could actually make their life so much better and you're with them, you start to see if you took these few steps, you could actually develop a product that they could not live without. I like to say, 
if a customer, like I've had entrepreneurs and I've told them, you know, go out to the market, uh, talk to a hundred potential customers, tell me what their reaction is. An entrepreneur comes back to me and says, I talked to a hundred potential customers. All of them said, oh, that's nice. That's great what you're working on. Come back when it's ready. You know what I tell that entrepreneur? You're dead in the water. Nobody buys a nice to have product. Nobody. Like unless your customer, their response to to you is, oh my God, I need that today. How can I get it? What can I do? Just tell me, I'm on board. Unless they give you that reaction, honestly, you don't have anything because those are the things that take off and you don't know that reaction until you're embedded with the customer. I love what you're laying down. So Glenn, go ahead with your question. Mr. Hoffman, how are you, sir? Hi, Glenn. How are you doing? I am so good, man. This has been really, really valuable. man. You've got some great, great, great insights, and I really appreciate you sharing them uh, with the audience here. And Like uh, my man Billy said, I hope people are picking up what you're putting down. Thank you. I did have one question for you, and I don't mean to play devil's advocate, but it's just a little bit on the opposite side of something that you shared. So I thought we could dive into it just a little bit. On the studying of the competition, so I come from the automotive industry, and the biggest disruptor we've had in the auto industry in a very long time has been Elon Musk and Tesla. And uh, one of the things that Elon said, they asked him about you know, Rivian and some of these other um, electric car companies, and Elon said, I have no idea what's going on with my competition. He said, we do not spend any time, effort, or energy watching what they're doing. And his thought process behind that was if we're watching the competition, we may put ourselves in in a box where we're doing things that are similar versus things that are completely 100% disruptive. And so I thought about that in my own world. I, I try to do things that are really disruptive and I try to not follow suit with my competition so we can create those wow moments that you were just talking about. So Talk to me about that. How do you feel about Elon saying you should never be looking at your competition versus what you had just shared, which is how important it is to really dive into the competition? I'm a little conflicted. What do you think? Well, that is an excellent point to bring up. And, you know, I have to hand it to Elon. He is a brilliant guy and an even more brilliant marketer. Like he knows what to say to make his brand, the Elon Musk brand, eclipse everybody else. So of course, Elon can say that. You know, he's on top of the world right now. He can literally say, everybody follows me. I don't even care what they're doing. But imagine if Ford or Mercedes said that. They said, you know, we're not even looking at, we don't care what Elon's doing in electric cars. We're just doing our own thing. If they don't respond quickly, you know, it doesn't matter how big the company is, whether it's Toyota, you know, Mercedes, Ford, GM, if they aren't looking at like upstarts like Elon, they're going to get totally eclipsed. I'm sure they are looking and they better be looking at everything Elon has on his plate and everything he's talking about because they're going to get, you know, they're going to get outperformed by him. Honestly, looking at the competition doesn't mean you're not innovating. It does not mean you are not coming up with breakthrough ideas. Elon was playing into that myth of the great creator. Like he wants everybody to look at him as like the genius whose ideas come out of thin air. He comes up with everything. He's leading the pack. That's basically what the myth he's propagating, but that's not the way the real world works. 
So if you look at what actually happens behind the scenes, the Elon isn't coming up with all these ideas, first of all. He is the spiritual leader of these companies. Like he's, you know, he has a boring company, he has, you know, uh, SpaceX, he has Tesla, he, he had Solar City, but he acquired it. You know, he has Neuralink. He isn't in the woods, he isn't doing all that work for these companies. He is taking credit for the ideas. But his team, even though he says they aren't looking at what's happening in the real world outside their own little bubble, they better be, and they are. Every really great innovators, their ideas don't come out of nowhere. Like Steve Jobs, he could have said, ah, Apple, I come up with all the best ideas. We never look outside to anybody else. But we know the facts. Elon Musk went and took all the interface ideas from Xerox Park. Like for the Macintosh, he took those ideas. The iPhone didn't come out of nowhere. There was Palm Pilot and Trio way ahead of him who had already figured out the, a really amazing graphical interface. It just wasn't quite at the level of the iPhone, but they were really popular. They just took their eye off the ball and then Apple leapfrogged them. But he took all those ideas from those guys. The Elon Musk, he didn't even start Tesla. Like Tesla wasn't his idea. He was an investor in the company. The actual founders of Tesla are kind of pissed that Elon took all their credit. And I'm not dissing Elon. Elon is an, a brilliant guy. And at what he does, like be, being that, that zeitgeist, that leader, that visionary, there is nobody in the world who captures the, the, the imagination better than him and actually gets people to try his new products and makes them seem like the most incredible best things that were ever delivered. He is great at that. And he is doing that when he says it, but that's not what great companies do. So that is my answer to your question. I love it. I think that that's a, uh, a brilliant answer and I, I, I can find alignment with that. Okay, focusing on the opportunities to innovate while looking at the competition. And once you get to the top where you dominate the globe, then you're welcome to stop looking at what they're doing. Well, you're, welcome, you're welcome to say you don't look at what they do. Right, you're welcome but, but to your say probably, and, and then allow your be, teams your, to do your it. Teams, if you are so arrogant that you think you, you have a monopoly on all the best ideas in the world, in the future, I'm sorry, you're completely blind. You do not. No company is on top forever. And as soon as they stop looking on what's going on around them, they are hurting themselves. They're just too arrogant. So your team better be looking at everything that's going on because nobody has a monopoly. The best idea can be coming out of some kid in a basement somewhere else, not from your company. And you better be, if you aren't responding quickly to that, you're going to be left in the dust. And you know what I think about is these are not mutually exclusive things. Studying your competition and innovating in ways your competition is not innovating. They're two distinct things, but they're, they're not mutually exclusive, meaning you can have both. You can study your competition and you can use first principles thinking. Obviously, for those who know me, you know, I worked at Tesla and I had very close proximity to not only to Elon, but to people in his orbit. And yes, a big part of the culture there, and I'm glad you brought this up, Glenn, is this idea of not just incrementally improving based upon what already exists, but thinking about things from the ground up. If this didn't exist, what would it look like? But I also think there is enormous value in understanding the things that exist. You don't stick your head in the sand and say, I don't, I don't care. It's, hey, these exist. And you know what? We could do it so much better. So I, I love that. David, I don't know if you had a question, if you were just clapping. Did you have a question or an insight that you wanted to bring in? I guess my question is, is around you know, the example you used with Gmail. It would be very challenging or difficult or almost impossible to get somebody to 
move away from Gmail unless it was something so, like you said, exponential, extraordinary. What if somebody has an idea for like a product, like a CRM or something that you think is going to be that next thing? Is there a way to kind of test that before like going and investing all this money into something and developing it? Or, I mean, somebody was just talking about uh, somebody's building a voice app. Uh, I'm sorry. It was, uh, what was it? Oh, Masterclass. I heard this last night. Like, like they've they've invested about fifty million dollars into Masterclass so far at a complete loss, and so I'm just curious to know what your thoughts are for somebody that was does want to bring a new product or or something like into the into the space and and what's the best way to do that? Really good point. So how do you know if your idea is a breakthrough idea, or if it's just a me too idea or something that's incrementally better that isn't really going to make much of a wave? And this is the billion dollar question, the unicorn question. And how do you do that at an early stage before you built the product and spent all the time? I will tell you, what you need to be doing is you need to be designing experiments to answer this question early and often, just at the beginning, but at every stage of your product, you need to be designing new experiments as you make progress to really answer this question. You know, is this thing, is this product just going to fly off the table? Are people just going to go nuts over it? Now, at the earliest stage, it depends what type of business you have. So if you have a business that is B2B or enterprise, like you're going out to other businesses, you can approach them directly and engage them in a dialogue and start to figure out whether there is what I call an extreme need for your product. It can't be a normal need. It has to be extreme, like, like I said before. Like they, they have to be salivating, chomping at the bit to get at this product. And how do you figure that out? Well, if you don't want to spend a lot of money, and I know entrepreneurs who do it backwards, like they spent a year, two years working, perfecting a product only to go into the marketplace and find out that the need is not extreme, that these people are like, ah, that's nice to have, and then they never get it. They never adopt it. So what you need to do is you need to visualize that product as well as you can with the resources you have. So how can you make that product real for people, for your potential customers? So you go out to business owners, you might have a PowerPoint, even better, you have a video showing the product, even better, you have an actual uh, hands-on prototype that they can use, doesn't have to be fully functional, but something that they can respond to. So at the very beginning, when you don't have anything, you just go talk to them. Like you go talk to them. Like I said before, you start to figure out whether it addresses one of their pain points, one of their most pressing issues that they have, whether that's getting more revenue, being more efficient, having uh, less problems with maintenance, with what, you know, whatever you're trying to solve. It addresses one of these things, acquiring more customers, keeping their customers, whatever it is. Does, is it aligned with one of those? And can they tell you that if you delivered this, they would be so excited they're willing to come on board tomorrow. Like they are that excited. If you get that response, then you can go to the next level and develop something more. The next thing could be a PowerPoint and then after that, a video and then after that, a hands-on prototype that they can try. And you do this incrementally, continually going back to your core customer base, the ones you are targeting and getting that feedback. If you're not going to businesses, if you're going to consumers, there's a whole nother path you take. And that is these crowdfunding sites like Kickstarter, Indiegogo, a great way, put up your product on that. Again, 
if you can bring that product to life, if you can make you go to Kickstarter, Indiegogo, you see the ones that get you excited. They have like the video, you can actually envision yourself using that product. And then you start to pre-order it. That is validation right there. Another way, if you're doing an app or something like that, is you get a really, I have a rule. People, when a new product enters the market, people do not buy that product for 10 reasons. They usually buy it because it does one thing, one thing so well that they can't get anywhere else. One thing. You go into the marketplace, figure out what that one core value you're going to provide your customer. Now, forget, strip away because you don't have a lot of money, you don't have a lot of resources or time, strip away everything else. You don't need all the other features of a mature product. Like there's so many things you could add to any product, but that will distract you. It'll take up your time. So really getting down to the core, the core mechanics uh, and designing those and getting that core, that nugget in the hands of your customer as early as possible so that you can start to gauge how they use it. Now, There are a lot of stories out there. Yelp is one story. When they put Yelp out there originally, they didn't think the ratings were really part of the core. They didn't think reviewing the restaurants and the other businesses was what Yelp was all about. That was an add-on feature. But once they put it out there, you know, got it going, and then they start running tests. They start testing different features. One of the features they were testing was reviews it spiked on reviews. Like that's what people wanted to do. They didn't think people would care about reviewing others. Remember, this was the early days, but they found out that that's really what people were not only willing to do it, they loved doing it and people loved reading and getting those reviews. They basically focused the whole product around that. When Instagram launched, Instagram was this complete social network. They had, you know, mobile social network. They had all these features. But when they put it into the hands of their customers, the early adopters, they found out that, and it was called bourbon originally, they found out that uh, really out of all the features, what people liked were just two things. They liked to share their photos on Facebook and they liked to use the filter. So they stripped out all the other features. They relaunched it, rebranded it as Instagram and just focused on those two things and the product spiked. That's why people downloaded it. So that is my advice in a nutshell to you. Love I got that. Love that. Okay. One final question. I'm going to pass it to Vernita to share what's upcoming. You say something, Captain Hoff, which is don't keep your idea a secret. And you believe that the chance of someone stealing your idea is actually much less than the chance of your business failing because it's a bad idea. You even go as far as to say is that the best story wins. Let's face it. The Bible is told in parables right? The best story wins. So what are your thoughts in closing on the story of your company as you get this market feedback? When do you start telling the story of your company? So you should start crafting your story as soon as possible. Uh, The story of your company is what ends up really going viral. That is your best marketing mechanism. So that is why a lot of times these companies with crazy ideas like Spike, like when they are out there to change the world, like Elon Musk keeps telling the story of going to Mars, that resonates with people. You know, it has throughout history, you know, we dreamed of going to other planets and and colonizing them. And that has fueled his business, which is primarily still, you know, transporting satellites into Earth orbit. It's not colonizing Mars yet, but that story behind it is really important. When you begin 
your startup. You should really start thinking, what is the story? And the story usually goes to the heart of uh, what people aspire to, how they see the world, how they see the future, how they see their lives, what they want out of their lives. So what is that story you can latch onto? Uh, and these stories trend, right? At different times, different stories hit the zeitgeist. They hit the consciousness of people. So you should experiment. like Just like you experiment with uh, going out there with running tests with your customers and multiple product ideas, you should be experimenting with multiple story ideas. There's many facets to a product, but figuring out what is the one that emotionally, because people make these buying decisions, these uh, these decisions in large part upon emotion, what will propagate? What is that meme that can drive your company's success from the beginning? Now, I want to tell you, a lot of entrepreneurs out there, they just think if they talk about the features, the product, the business aspects, that it will resonate. But these things, if you're going to catch the attention of the press, if you're going to catch the attention of consumers and potential customers, it's not about the features of your product. It's not about any of those things. It is really about how can that product transform their lives. So that ultimately comes down to your story. In the bigger story, on a social level, is what role do you play in the future of society? How are you transforming society? What difference are you making? Is it a meaning-based thing? And it can't be a story that's artificially grafted on there. It has to be something that comes from the core of what you're doing. If you just try to layer on something like, we are a green company on top of whatever else we're doing, it doesn't work. If it's not at your core, it won't sell. And so you, um, from day one, should be thinking about this. And if you aren't really, this isn't your power alley, you should have somebody on your team who is, like that is their job or hire an outside consultant to actually work with you to craft that. So good, man. Thank you so much, Steve. You could probably tell why I've interviewed Steve not once, but twice on my podcast, Inside Out. So if you want more, you could definitely hear more from him there. Also, his website is founderspace.com. His books, Make Elephants Fly, Surviving a Startup and the Five Forces That Change Everything are all extraordinary. What I love about Steve's books is it's not like three concepts that are repeated 30 times each. He gives brand new information chalked throughout the entire book in all of his books. So please do go find him. Steve, where else can they find you and where else would it be valuable for them to, to learn more from you? Yep. So founderspace.com is the best place. I have a podcast too. You can go there and check it out. You can also find me on LinkedIn. I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on every social network. So just search for Founderspace, Steve Hoffman, or my nickname, Captain Hoff. Love it, love it, love it. Thanks, Captain Hoff. Appreciate you. Let's blow them up. Everyone follow Captain Hoff and let's give him a warm welcome. If you learned something today, just imagine how much you'll gain when we come together in person in Lexington, Kentucky, November 5th through the 7th at the Grow for God conference. Glenn Lundy will be there celebrating his thousandth episode. That's right. A thousand episodes of hashtag rise and grind. Thanks everyone. Have an amazing, amazing week. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Inside Out. I hope you took away some valuable insights that will help you in business and in life. 
If you like this show, the best payment you can give is to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast platform. You can also listen to past episodes and see a breakdown of all the best insights by going to insightoutshow.com. And for the record, there's no greater compliment than sharing this show with your friends on social media. So if there's an insight or a lesson that you liked, please share it and tag both me and today's guest. And until next time, remember, your next life-changing breakthrough moment may happen when you least expect it. Insight out.